subject of today's message is repentance. Because there are many churches that will never talk on the topic. They will never challenge you about issues in your life. They will never tell you that you are a sinner that needs to come to Christ for salvation, and that is the only way you'll find it. But you see, the other side of the factor is also this. There are many churches that will take people who have, well, they've really repented. They've seen what they've done is wrong, and they want to be restored. And instead of restoring them, oh, well, I've been in the service of a young lady who, well, she got pregnant as a teenage girl. She had a heart of repentance and asked the church to forgive her. And instead of forgiving her, they demeaned her. And instead of lifting her up and restoring her, they wanted just so she could understand how horrible what she did really was. You see, many churches will flee the subject of repentance. Unfortunately, there's also some other churches who will use repentance as an opportunity to make themselves feel better. Today is Palm Sunday, as we like to call it. But in reality, Palm Sunday is not a celebration. Next week is our day of celebration. But Palm Sunday is a day of decision. It is a day of decision for you. You see, at some point, you're going to have to make a decision about who Jesus is. About who he really is in your life. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision about what faith in Jesus really means to you. It was 1949, and a young preacher by the name of Billy Graham, he was 29 years old, and he found himself the president of a Bible college, a Christian college in Minnesota. But he felt God had called him to be an evangelist, and so he was attempting to do both. And in 1949, he had a meeting there in Los Angeles, and he met up with an old friend of his who had now been going to Princeton Seminary, a very liberal seminary. And Billy Graham was at a crossroads in his life. He had to make a decision. Will he keep doing this evangelism? Or will he seek higher education and go into the education field and be the professor and the president of this Bible college? And his friend, who had once believed the same thing as Billy Graham, told him, well, Billy, your ideas are out of date. What you're thinking about, the Bible isn't real. You need to understand the Bible isn't inspired. The men just tell stories about God, and the gospel that you're preaching is out of date, and you need to change. Billy Graham had a day of decision in that day. He had just come from a revival in Georgia, and quite frankly, it went poorly. And he had to make a decision, not only what he would do in his life, education, or evangelism, but he had to come to a point of decision about what this Bible said and who Jesus was and what it would be in his life. And in his autobiography that day before the Los Angeles revival that he had scheduled, that was only supposed to be three days, he went out into some wooded area, and he said he found a tree stump. And that's why I have this here today. You've been wondering. And he found a tree stump, and he said that he went out into that tree stump and placed his Bible on the tree stump, knelt down by it, and said something along the lines of this. Lord, I do not understand everything in this book. I do not understand how all of it goes with science and history and everything else. 
But from this day forward, by faith, I believe everything that is in this book. And this day forward, by faith, I place my life on this tree stump. And I will use my life to serve you and you alone. He got up from the tree stump. And the next day began is what's called his Los Angeles revival. <clears throat> because a meeting that was supposed to be just three days turned into eight weeks. And over 300,000 people came into what they called his church tent to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me just say something to you today. I am not here today to lift up Billy Graham. I am using him as an illustration. I am here today to lift up the one that he knelt down by a tree stump and said, I will serve you today. I am here today to lift up Jesus Christ. My question for you is this. What if I gave everything? What if I just gave everything I could have and all that I am and put it on that tree stump with God's altar? What if I lived like I believed everything? You know, I'm used to being the minority in the world. I'm used to being a minority in the world. I've only been married to one girl my whole life. I've only been intimate with one girl my whole life. I've never cheated on her. We don't allow alcohol in our home. We have some basic standards. And I'm used to being the minority in the world. But I've come to realize I'm the minority in the church now. What if we actually live like I believe everything? And what if I worship? those three things, all three of these questions, this is repentance. This is what true repentance looks like. Not, I, everything I got is yours, God. I hold nothing back, no part of my life, no issue. It's all up to you. I don't fully understand everything about the Bible, but from now on, everything I have is yours. God, I'm going to live like this. My basic morality, that girl I made a promise to, I'm going to stay with her. That man I said I'd do to, I'm going to stay with him. I gave somebody my word I would do something. I'm going to stay to it, God. I'm going to live like everything in this Bible is true. But what if I really worship him? What if I worship God like he had everything? You see, that, that is repentance. Let me tell you a few things about repentance. First of all, repentance means a turn in direction. It means a turn in direction. Uh, repentance means, yes, I'm going this way, and I make a 180-degree turn. Uh, is it a turn from sin? Yes, it is a turn from sin, but it's not. that's not what the focus is. It's not that I'm turning from sin. The focus is that I'm turning to God. The focus is that I'm turning to Jesus. And I'd like to take a moment here and go deeper and assume that you are ready for a deeper knowledge of what I'm about to say. And that's this, that repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Make no mistake, if you're here today, you're saying, I made a decision to walk away from my sin, and I made a decision to turn to Jesus. That's not repentance, that's reform. Repentance is this, 
God, I, I just can't do this anymore. Everything I'm doing is wrong. I'm going to stop resisting you. And God gives you the faith to believe. And God gives you the ability. And it is God who turns me. And God changes me. And now I'm facing a different direction. Not because I make the decision. Here's the problem with somebody you're thinking, well, I can make this decision. No, because what that is is that there are many people that will say, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And when at times got hard, I made a decision now. Now I'm going to not follow Jesus and I'm no longer saved. Let me tell you this. If you know Christ is your personal Savior, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You've been put in your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. I can never lose my salvation because my salvation is nothing about me. My salvation is everything about my Savior. Repentance is, let me throw this verse at you just so you understand. 2 Timothy 2. And the servant of the Lord must not strive and be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. And God, pre-adventure, give them repentance, the knowledge of truth. Paul writes to Timothy, a young preacher, pray that God would give these people that are forced, that are working against you, these people that don't, that God would give them the gift of repentance and turning away. This is why so many religious people will not make heaven. Yeah. Because it's all about them and what they do. And the Bible says the best you have is filthy rags, right? Not by works of righteousness so, no, so that we can't boast. This is, now, this is why so many Christians struggle with a sinful habit. Come on. This is why they struggle. Because instead of repenting, they're reforming. Instead of coming to Jesus, they have a New Year's resolution. I will no longer, I will no, I make a promise to no longer. Can I just suggest something different to you today? Instead of it being about you and what you're doing, why not take that habit, that sin, that little thing that no one knows about, whatever it is in your life, you know what it is. It could be an attitude, it could be a thing, it could be an action, whatever it is. Why not, instead of keep trying to stop it and stop it and stop it, why don't you first come to a tree stump of an altar and in a moment of repentance take it and say, God, I can't stop doing this. This doesn't seem like something I can get the victory over. So, Lord, it is now in your control. You are in charge of it. God, give me the gift of stopping. I repent of everything I've done. It's now yours to take care of it. You see, reformation will only take you so far. But repentance, it's an act of God. And our marching forth to the greatest event in human history, our marching orders today is this. The church must lead by example of true repentance. It's time to have a tree stump moment in your life. It's time to let God work. Time, it's time to repent. The greatest event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's show the world that it's real because of what he's done in our lives. In Luke 19, we often call this passage Palm Sunday. It's the week before the crucifixion. It is often, and I'm going to say this, technically mistakenly called the triumphant entry of Jesus. That he comes into the city, and maybe even your Bible has it listed there in the title, the triumphant entry. This is really not the triumphant entry of Jesus. Tonight, we will be talking about the triumphant entry, the real triumphant entry. The real triumphant entry, well, 
The real time of ministry, the next thing that's going to happen on the church's calendar is the rapture of the church. Christ is going to come back for the believers. We're out of here. And then some point after, there's what we call the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period, where God takes his hand off this world and lets people do what they want to do. And we'll look at tonight about the real wrath that is poured out. It is horrible what's going to take place on this planet. After that period, though, with what we call the second coming of Christ, that is the real triumphal entry of Jesus. He will step foot on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the same place in Acts chapter 1 where he left this earth. He will step foot on those Mount of Olives, and he will walk into that eastern gate. That same gate he will walk in today, he will come back and walk into it. You know what is amazing is that Muslims believe Jesus more than the typical preachers today. Because what the Muslims have done, that eastern gate, they've bricked it off. They said, you're not coming through here. And just in case that doesn't work, they took and they made a Muslim cemetery right in front of that eastern gate, thinking that no Jew would walk through a Muslim cemetery. That's not in the Bible, but I don't know. And they think they can brick off and stop it. I'm here today to tell you that there's going to come a time and place after seven years that Jesus is going to come through the clouds in Revelation 19. I'm coming with him. I hope you're ready for the trip. And he's going to step foot on those Mount of Olives that overlook the eastern gate. And they will split north to south, and he will walk right through that eastern gate. That, and that, is the real triumphal entry of Jesus. So we're going to break down this passage in Luke 19. And we're going to look at the first triumphal entrance and the second triumphal entrance. The second is the real. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go and borrow a donkey. That's probably not a miracle. Some think it is. He probably just arranged it ahead of time, and that's probably what took place. But in verse 39, 35, excuse me, and they brought to him Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt and set Jesus there. I'm going to give you a lot of Bible. I hope you like Bible. We're going to have a lot of Bible today. The first triumphal entrance is this. At the first triumphal entry, a donkey is a symbol of a peaceful king. Prophecy is being fulfilled here in verse 39 in Zechariah. 9 9, but it says, The king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, upon the colt foal of a donkey. The donkey was a, a instrument, a, an animal that a king would ride. It's sort of the Mercedes or the Cadillac. Oh, no, no. It's the Ford or GM of their day. Yes, I said that. That's the type of an animal a king would ride, but it's also a, a symbol of peace. But at his real triumphal entry, in Revelation 19, 11, he will come back on a horse. And that horse is a symbol of a warring king. And it says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him, this is Jesus, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. At his first triumphal entry, there's laying of clothes was a recognition of royalty. Again, in verse 35. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. John 12, 13 adds that they put down palm branches in the way. By doing this, it was a symbol of recognition of royalty. It was a symbol of submission. But at his second triumphal entry, his robe will declare his deed and glory. In Revelation 19, 16, and he hath on his vesture, that's his robe, and on his thigh a name which was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I 
took this verse of a young man and I took it to my mother and see, Jesus had a tattoo. She said, when you can walk on water, you can get one too. At his first triumphal entry, he arrived, the arrivals cheered. Look at verse 37. And he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God. If you'd like to put notes in your Bible, they are quoting Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. But Matthew 21, 9 says that they are also shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Jewish word. Now, it is interesting that Luke omits that they're shouting Hosanna. But it's not really difficult to understand why, because Luke is writing his Gospels to Gentiles, which is us. Matthew is writing his gospel to Jews, and so for Matthew to include this is just because they understand that. I went out to uh, lunch after church last week, and me and, and George with a young man who's been attending our church, and he's from Brazil. And we were discussing different idioms, and you know, we say things like, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. He didn't understand that, right? The Jewish culture, when they heard Hosanna, they would know exactly what it means, but for us as Gentiles, they had no concept. But as they shouted Hosanna, it was a Jewish welcome that literally means, save us now. But at his second triumphal entry, his arrival was feared. Listen to this from Revelation 19. Listen, Christina, are you trying to scare me to make a decision on Jesus Christ? No, I guess I'm trying to be like an insurance agent and tell you this. Here's what could happen, and here's what's probably going to happen. And you need to be ready, because if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you may see this event, but you'll see it on the other side. Revelation 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. They come together, we call it the battle of Armageddon at Jerusalem. And they're finally going to wipe God and all of his people off the planet. But here comes the hero. Him that sat upon the horse against his armies. And the beast was taken with the false prophet that brought miracles before him. And he was deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, 666 if you know your Bible. And them that worshipped his image. Those were cast alive into the lake of burning, burning with brimstone. His first coming was cheered. You have the opportunity today to either cheer Jesus, well, or you can make the decision to fear him in the future. Seeing future events, Jesus would look over Jerusalem, and Jesus will perfectly predict what's going to happen to Jerusalem in AD 70. When Titus would lay seas on the city. This is history. Everything Jesus is telling them happens, literally. Look at verse 41. He proclaims this about the city. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Saying, if thou hast known. Listen, side note. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the spot where he comes back. That city belongs to Israel. That city is God's city. So was it a special city? It doesn't look special in the pictures. To me, Clarkston looks better than Jerusalem. But it is God's city. He puts a high priority on this city. And saying, if thou hadst known, even thou at the least in this thy day, thy things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes because you just don't understand what's coming. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench upon thee. Literally what Titus did. Three times the Romans tried to take that city. And Titus is finally assigned the job. And this is literally what he did. He 
cast a trench about thee, compass around thee, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even in the ground upon thy children before thee. They seize the city, they capture, they go around it, and inside the city, parents historically tell us parents hate their children. And they shall not leave thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy salvation. This city will be, and its inhabitants will be finally destroyed. You can put this down in your Bible, September 8th, A.D. 70. A.D. 70, September 8th, they are finally destroyed. Jesus predicts it here at either 33 A.D. or probably more like the lines of 30 A.D. But Jesus predicts it here. Luke will write his gospel. He said, well, Luke wrote this after. No, Luke will write his gospel in 60 A.D., 10 years before these events take place. Listen, you can mark it down. If Jesus says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And if you're okay with the Jesus of Christmas at the manger, if you're okay with the Jesus on some sort of level of, yeah, he conquered the grave, you need to understand this. That same Jesus is coming back, and he's going to judge the world. Yeah. You need to be ready on that day. This, though, this is a day of decision for the people of Jerusalem. Some will accept him, and some will reject him. Many Many would be spurred on by the events of John 11 just the week before, where Jesus would go to that tomb, that, that graveyard, and go to the tomb of Lazarus and to cry, Lazarus, come forth! And everyone he, everyone knew Lazarus was dead. And now he's walking around talking about this Jesus is raised. Only the Messiah could do that. You know one of the things I don't think is fair, and I've been in church long enough, I've heard it so many times, especially on this subject, the same people that shout Hosanna in the next few days will soon shout, crucify him. That's not in the Bible, by the way, that it's the same people. It never says that it's the same. Oh, I'm sure there are some people that were part of that group. But it never says the exact same people. I believe many of these people, when Jesus came in and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, they actually believed it. The events of Jesus' crucifixion and the public display where he said either Barabbas or Jesus is actually kind of a private issue. It wasn't the entire city of Jerusalem coming out. It was a sham little trial that took place. So many of the people here that shouted, Hosanna, they did not shout, crucify him the next day. Why? Because many of them repented on this day and put everything they had on the stump and would not pick it up the next day or would not pick it up for anything. And many of the same people who shouted Hosanna will die in a few years for Jesus. <coughs> many in the crowd repented. They experienced victory that only repentance can bring. So today, three things. Three signs of victorious repentance. Ask you, how do I know it if I really repented? Number one, what are your reaction to authority? The reaction to the people. The people in the crowd there leaped. They leaped at the chance to serve Jesus. They leaped at the opportunity to do whatever Jesus said. When you have been to a tree stump moment, an altar moment in your life, you will finally stop fighting God and do whatever he wants. Out in our parking lot, we have a few parallel spots. And there's a few driver's ed teachers who use our parking lot to 
this last week I watched one of those in there, and I'm so thankful I'm not one of them watching the driver and the young people. I thought it was fascinating because they put up little cones, and these kids have parallel parts, and I watched this one young girl and this driver, and it must have taken her a half hour to get it right, back and forth, back and forth. But you know what I thought as I'm watching it, it was so amazing, the respect she gave those cones. She might not have been good at it, it might have taken her a long time, I hope she gets her license, but she might not, maybe I don't, she might not have been good at it, but she had so much respect, she would never once think about hitting one of those cones. Isn't it amazing the respect we give so many other things? But when the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. When I was 18, uh, I made this decision to just say yes to whatever God wanted me to do. That's why I'm here today. And I got approached by a lady in our church and said, we're doing these like Bible studies. She was part of a ladies group. And need you to go and you'll lead a Bible study and assist with some like uh, 14 and 15 year olds. It's sort of an older mentoring type thing. So I was doing it, going to this house, and talking with these kids. They were like 14, 15. And uh, one of them, I came in, and just before we meet in the house and stuff, I just listened to her talk to her mother. Completely disrespectful. And uh, she came in there, and we were talking, and I said this to her. You can see me saying this at 18. I said, you know what your problem is? What? I said, your problem is you're not saved. And I said, if you can talk to your mother that type of disrespecting, your mother who you can see, how do you talk to Jesus who you can't see? If you truly repented, you'll submit to God's authority. If you truly repented, you have no problem when God says, thus saith the Lord. If you've had a tree stump experience of repentance, not only do you place your Bible on that tree stump, you place your whole life and everything about you and say, Lord, whatever you say goes. Number two, signs of victorious repentance, commitments that last. Re Reformation is changes you make. I'm glad you decided to eat less and exercise. Probably good for you. I'm glad you decided to quit some habit. Probably good for you to do that. But those are changes you make. That's reform. Repentance is changes God makes. You know, commitments are taboo to talk about in our company. Because we break them so easily. We leave people we made commitments to. Or we leave our church. We made a commitment to our church and we leave it, quite frankly, over silly reasons. We fear commitments. I've told this to some of this next generation. They said, I find it fascinating that you're willing to commit to a tattoo, but you're not willing to commit to a person forever. You're willing to put some stupid band on your arm, you're willing to put something on your neck which basically just says, unemployable. You're willing to do all of these things, make a lifelong commitment to having to look at, you know, Metallica rules, but you're not willing to make a lifetime commitment to one person. Stop making New Year's resolutions when it comes to Jesus. Just repent. Drop your issue in God's hands. When you have a tree stump moment, Change happens. And you know when that change happens? It's a God thing. Number three, you've had victorious repentance. Well, there's just release joy. There are two great stories in Jesus' ministry that talk about this. 
One, if you remember that guy they often called the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, what must I do? I've done everything I'm supposed to. And Jesus told him, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. And he said, no, no, I got a lot. Don't you understand? I'm rich. That's what they call me. I'm not the poor young ruler. I'm the rich young ruler. And he went away at that moment, what? Sad. He went away weakly. He was upset because he thought Jesus would just sort of confirm everything he already believed. But then there's another man. Remember the wee little man? Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. The wee little man was he who climbed up in the sycamore. You know, one time when I was a student pastor, we had all these kids that got saved and never did Sunday school. And so one time we were sitting around with some of the other kids who grew up in church. And just for fun, we knew what we were doing, and we kind of did it like as a rap. And I said, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And then somebody else jumped in, a wee little man was he. And he climbed up, and one of the kids who went down to the church and everything goes, how are you people doing this? <laughs> we went to Sunday school. We knew this up. But here's Zacchaeus, a rich man, a thief. And when Jesus said, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus repents. Not only does he repent, he gives away back what he stole. Not only does he give back what he stole, he repays more than what he had to the people that he stole. And what does it say about Zacchaeus? That he, and not just he, but his whole house rejoiced. The rich young ruler refused to repent, and he went away sad. Zacchaeus completely repented. He came to an altar, he came to a tree stump, and he put his faith Everything, his money, his possessions, his family on the stump and said, it is yours. And walked away rejoicing. I want to say this, I want to say it kindly. I might have to apologize later, but I'm going to say, maybe you wouldn't have to take as much depression medicine if you took a little repentance medicine first. Not everybody, but maybe. What is really amazing is not the joy we even experience today. What's really amazing is the joy of the future. This quote is often attributed to Billy Graham, but the first person who really said it was D.L. Moody. And Billy Graham always just paraphrased it. And it said this, D.L. Moody, Someday you will read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up high. That is all. Out of this old clay tenant into a house that is immortal. A body that death cannot touch. That sin cannot take. A body fashioned like unto his glorious body. When you have been to a real tree stump, you know real joy. Yeah. Some of you, you blow me away because I've been with you at the graveside. I've been with you in hospitals. And you still refuse to quit following Jesus. There are people today that forget quit following Jesus because, well, they got a flat tire. Because they didn't get the raise they wanted. Because something stupid that their team didn't win the Super Bowl. I'm still here. And you? Everything in the world could go wrong for you. You're struggling with your health. And yet, where are you? Right here. Still following. 
Why? Because you put it all on the altar. Because you truly repented. And God has. So my three questions again. What if I gave everything? <coughs> what if I lived like I believed everything? And what if I worshiped with everything I had? Billy Graham would close out just about, I believe, all of his revivals with the song, Just As I Am. The song, Just I Am, was written, well, written by this lady. Charlotte Elliott. And Charlotte Elliott, in the first 30 years of her life, was very healthy, and she was a very popular poem writer. She had a great life until somewhere around the 30th year, she was struck down with a physical illness. She was basically bed-bound for the rest of her life. She was trapped in her home and could not leave. As the story goes, Elliott was struck by the words of a minister who had come to visit her and asked her whether she truly had given her heart to Christ. The question at first bothered Elliott. After some days, she told the minister that she wanted to serve God but didn't know how. He replied this, just come to him as you are. One night, she decided to determine her spiritual condition. Taking pen and paper from the table, she deliberately sat down in writing, for her own comfort, the formula of her faith. And what she wrote that night, that bitter, bedridden woman turned into a woman of joy. A woman who's serving God. And what she wrote that night was this. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou didst me to come. O Lamb of God, I come. Yeah. That was her tree stump moment. Forever, forever changed. And that's what repentance. Have you really come to know Christ as your personal Savior? Do you know Jesus today? It's an opportunity to meet Him as Lord. You're here and you're a believer. Let's be honest. God doesn't have your morality. You're doing some stuff you shouldn't have. God doesn't have this. God doesn't have what you have. Why don't you come today, Christian? come to a tree stump and say, you know what? I don't understand everything in this Bible. The pastor says some things he doesn't even understand. But you know what? I'm going to start living my life like I believe everything I do. And God, I place my life on the altar. Today is my tree stump moment. 